This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears and Long Live the New Flesh. Uh, yes, we are back in the studio with a new show. I'm Stephen Cook, an arts writer here in Halifax. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're going to talk about a wonderful new Canadian thriller called The Disappearance at Clifton Hill, and also look at the career of one of its cast members, uh, an up-and-coming actor by the name of David Cronenberg. I think uh, I think we we can expect great things from him down the road. Director, actor, editor, producer, Cronenberg, David Cronenberg is a self-styled king of body horror, almost single-handedly elevating the horror genre from sleaze and exploitation to something far more sophisticated and thoughtful. Watching from 2020, it's actually hard to believe no one before him thought to make horror movies that imagined the threat coming from within our fragile, sex-driven bodies rather than from without. But I, you know, I guess there was the invasion of the body snatchers and Night of the Living Dead. But Cronenberg doubled down on all of that, bringing institutional and systemic cancer to bear in his stories, in his feature films. Now, while he's best known as a filmmaker, and we're using this opportunity uh, where he's acting in a film to talk about his work as a director, uh, he has actually acted a fair amount, um, and he's was in uh, Nightbreed, he was in To Die For, Blood and Donuts, Extreme Measures, even Jason X, uh, and more recently he was in uh, Sarah Polly's series, Alias Grace. But uh, in terms of his acting work, I'd say that probably Don McKellar's Last Night is his most poignant role as an actor. Um, and uh, it's really a lovely film. If, I don't know. I think we might have talked about the, last night in our in our episode about Canadian films. Yes, I think it did come up for yeah, sure. Yeah, and a great certain, one. we certainly talked about Cronenberg in passing. But we're going to talk today with as much time as we have uh, about his body of work. I mean, he's been making feature films since the early 70s. And before that, he made short films. And so there's way too many to talk about in an hour with any kind of depth. But we're going to tackle ones we hadn't seen or ones that we wanted to revisit. So it'll be a little bit of a, a subjective take on, <laughs> on some of his films. Hopefully we'll talk about some of your favorites. But uh, let's start with the film that he's acting in that's in cinemas now. And it's called Disappearance at Clifton Hill. And this is directed uh, and co-written by Albert Shin, uh, a new filmmaker. And... Uh, you know, it's funny, we don't really see a lot of moody detective stories in cinemas anymore. I think it's because television has more or less perfected the genre. It's sort of a good twisty script and one star performer is a formula that attracts eyeballs again and again without, you know, the need for a major budget. Um, but uh, in order for a pot boiler like this to work on the big screen, it's got to have something extra, something special. And I think Disappearance at Clifton Hill's pleasures, they're not, like, grand, but they really work for the kind of movie it is. Uh, I think it provides quite a bit for fans of mysteries. And it's a, it's in Canadian cinema, something else I want to point out is that because budgets are tend to be low, there's not a lot of care to production value. And this film has style to spare. Oh, it sure does. It's really pretty interesting. It's a, it's a, It stars Tuppence Middleton, a British actor who you cannot... You cannot hear her British accent at all. She really does the Canadian thing well. She plays Abby, a troubled young woman from Niagara Falls who goes back home um, to when her mother dies and she inherits 
a dilapidated motel on the edge of town. Um, Abby has both an estranged sister uh, who stayed home and got a job at the casino and a deeply restless intellect with not enough to keep her busy. So she comes back and she doesn't really know what she's going to do. And she remembers that when she was a kid, there was a, a... she thought she saw a little boy abducted, and that memory has stayed with her. And she sees some photographs that she also were left behind by her mother. And she's like, oh, wait, there's something here. And maybe it wasn't all just part of my fantasy. So she starts to dig into it. Um, you know, in, in our last episode, Stephen, we talked about um, the uh, King of Marvin Gardens and how uh, Bob Rafelson used uh, out-of-date, uh, off-season Atlantic City as a great set. And I sort of feel like Shin is doing the same thing here. Oh, with, very much so. With this sort of like... Na- Niagara Falls is yeah. so... If you've been there, you know it has that kind of seedy veneer that, you know, that attempt to do Vegas and then gave up halfway <laughs> yeah, through. that's right. Um, you know, it's, it's got a little bit of the glitz and a little bit of the razzle-dazzle, but then, you know... Uh, it's at some point uh, things just kind of tailed off. The, the the thrill of going there for a honeymoon was not what it used to be. I'm not sure, you know, maybe the resi- rise of resort culture sort of coincided with attempts to make Niagara Falls a, a vacation destination. I mean, the falls are still there and they're majestic and wonderful. And there's a casino where, uh, you know, I got to see Elvis Costello perform there once. That was pretty cool. But but uh, it's not a place you really want to spend a lot of time unless you're going there for a specific reason. And, uh, yeah, the, I guess there's like a, a big parrot uh, um, habitat place there too, which I sadly did not get to when I was in Niagara Falls. But, um, but you know, like any, any place like that that has that just hint of faded glamour tends to have a weird undercurrent of... of of people who are reaching for something that either wasn't there or was just beyond their reach. And there's a lot of that uh, lurking throughout uh, Disappearance at Clifton Hill. And, uh, you know, the, that kind of overwhelming sense of disappointment in life that, that almost every one of these characters uh, seems to have uh, running through their veins. Yeah, including David Cronenberg yes. as the uh, sort of conspiracy theorist um, scuba diving podcasting <laughs> dude. <laughs> and uh, we first meet him as he's coming out of the water somewhere, you know, downriver from Niagara Falls. Uh, and he plays a big part in this, an important part, uh, with his connection to this character that uh, our lead. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. It's, I mean... I don't know. I, I can't relate to a podcaster who's filled with despair. I, that characterization just uh, d- just didn't click with me for yeah, some reason. funny that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great to see him in this. I know a lot of people haven't who have missed Cronenberg because he hasn't made a feature film since uh, Map to the Stars in ni- in 2014. Uh, might be like, why? What is he doing, spending his time acting in someone else's movies? But you know, the guy has earned a little bit of a downtime. You know, if he's more interested in in writing books or developing projects, and I, I did read a little something that he's got something sort of in the pipeline. But but if he'd rather act in someone's movie, you know, uh, feel free to do so. I, I think we've got plenty to talk about today in terms of his his back catalog. I think he does enjoy acting. Uh, he's I mean he's been memorable in things like Nightbreed, Blood and Donuts. Uh, I don't know about uh, John Landis's The Stupids. Um, <laughs> Which he turns up in, was starring Tom Arnold, a film I've uh, I've yet to uh, grace my eyeballs with. But but you know he he has that kind of dry laconic presence, um, you know, with something disturbing under the under the surface, but you can't quite put your finger on it. And uh, and clearly the guy has a sense of humor that is also very tightly controlled. There there is a lot of humor 
in these films, as terrifying and nightmare-inducing as they are, he he he's uh, very much an intellectual, and and there's uh, and, and he 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 understands the value of of just that very brainy humor to just kind of offset things ever so slightly. Yeah, uh, I actually made notes of a few of the places where I laughed out loud. Oh, there's so many yeah. throughout these films, um, and and he he brings that same sense to uh, his characterizations. He plays things very straight. Uh, and and maybe that's what makes him more either intriguing because he obviously has a lot going on underneath the surface in disappearance at Clifton Hill. That's not a spoiler or anything. He just he's a guy with a lot on his mind and he's he's really in uh, ingrained in the history of Niagara Falls and all of its mysteries and scandals and uh, backroom dealings uh, for this podcast, which takes place in a restaurant shaped like a flying saucer. Which as someone who went to uh, uh, I'm trying to Magic Valley or Happy Valley, whatever it was in, in Prince Edward Island that had the UFO gift shop. I really appreciated the UFO shaped restaurant that uh, that he works out of in the film. But uh, but you know, like he just seems like the perfect guy to to be pondering the hidden mysteries of this kind of end of the road for Ontario, as it were. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And uh, and it's nice to see him again, just to have his presence on film and remind ourselves. Of course, this we thought was should be the springboard to talking about and rewatching a number of his his films. Now, before we leave. Um, the disappearance at Clifton Hill behind. I mean, it sounds like you really liked it, uh, Stephen. And, and I, I did. Recommend it. You know, I was watching it, and it just, you know, it feels like obviously Shin is a huge Cronenberg fan, which would be why he reached out for him, out to him to, to and it's an original script, so he may have even written the part with him in mind. But, but there's that sense of control of of looming doom. You know, there's there's a lot of elements of Cronenberg's work that you can feel in this film without it seeming overly. Cronenbergian, for lack of a better word. I mean, it's not a body horror film. There's, but but you know, but there is kind of like the end of violence, a song of song, a movie we'll be talking about, obviously later in the podcast. You know, it does have that creep of ever approaching um, uh, inevitability of, of death or what have you, uh, creeping throughout the film. So uh, there's an influence there, um, but but rather wonderfully used, not not overdone. And um, and certainly using the environment the way the way that Cronenberg would often use his filming locations um, to their to their uh, their utmost um, and uh, yeah and Tuppence Middleton gives such a, a wonderful and, and and often heartbreaking performance here uh, you know she's really the heart and soul of this film and uh, I think uh, I think that's what makes the film work ultimately she is certainly an unreliable narrator which I think you get that sense almost from the get go you yeah. can't really trust her take on things, uh, but she's very sympathetic still, and uh, and full marks to Tuppence Middleton, maybe perhaps next to Benedict Cumberbatch, the <laughs> most British name, most English name <laughs> I can think of, uh, and I, I'm sure we'll see a lot more from her. In fact, I think she's in the new Brandon Cronenberg oh, film. Oh, that is would make the, sense. This is the son of David Cronenberg, who's gone on to have his own career. Not, you know, talk about the apple not falling far from the tree. His <laughs> yes. films are also very much interested in body horror. So uh, based on Antiviral, his first feature. So he's got a new one coming as well. Um, all right. So let's talk about a few of David Cronenberg's early films from the 70s, many of which I hadn't seen. I'd seen Scanners a while back, and that's still considered an early film, though, even though it's from, I think, 1980, 81. Um, but uh, previous to that, I hadn't seen any of them. And we watched Crimes of the Future, Shivers, Rabid, 
Fast Company and The Brood. Uh, so yeah, that was uh, that was quite a bit to take in. Uh, some I liked more than others. You know, I'm not like a hardcore horror fan, so the movie's got to have something else going on yes. in it for me to really feel connected to it. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Crimes of the Future is actually his second feature after Stereo, though Stere- both Crimes of the Future and Stereo are both short they're not short films, they're but they're just yeah. One's just under an hour, and one's just over an hour. Yeah, so so I mean, they do qualify as feature films, but just barely. Uh, and it's they they I mean, I did we didn't watch Stereo, but Climbs of the Future does feel like a student film. It's all shot in sort of a University of Toronto uh, environment, and uh, you can sense that Cronenberg is trying stuff. He's moving his camera around. Um, and it's a science fiction picture that really utilizes those brutalistic interiors and exteriors to create this futuristic society where all women have died and a male scientist wanders around talking to other guys. Uh, the plot doesn't really make much sense. Uh, there's most, there's no dialogue. It's all voiceover. But there is already that feeling of, like, there's, uh, you know, suggestions of sexual perversity, abnormality, weird associations, departments, and divisions. There's a dermatological clinic called the House of Skin, uh, the (laughs) metaphysical import-export, and the oceanic podiatry group uh yeah it there is a lot and of course all of this has the suggestion that Cronenberg has tongue firmly planted in cheek so so very much the dark humor but also the creep that uh that he would show again and again in his films and this movie although it didn't really Crimes of the Future didn't really do much for me uh it is certainly an influence on Denis Villeneuve's enemy that's one thing we noticed about it oh for sure and yeah I mean it's it's an early film uh the, I love the story that he lied uh, to get a grant. He lied that about writing a novel and actually used the money to make the film. And uh, that's, that's kind of brilliant considering he did go on to go back to uh, literary pursuits later on. But uh, I I love that kind of subterfuge, which is just perfectly in line with the sort of guerrilla independent filmmaking Uh, around that time. People like George Romero doing similar things uh, to get their films off the ground. Uh, And, and yeah, it, it came out, Roughly around the same time as Night of the Living Dead, and I'm guessing he must have felt fairly uh, uh, emboldened by the fact that there was this other film that was kind of along the same lines as 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 he was thinking about things like institutional breakdown and societal collapse and all this kind of stuff that that uh, is is certainly lingering in those two early films. Uh, I I did watch Stereo. It's black and white. It's very similar to Crimes of the Future. Uses some of the same locations. Um, Early in the film, there's a, a shot using a helicopter, which I'm thinking must have blown the entire budget. Some of the same cast members show up as well, um, and it, but it's it's still you know sort of about medical horror and 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 that kind of thing. So he kind of fleshes those out, you know, literally out those ideas a bit more in Crimes of the Future, uh, and uh, and and I guess uh, at that point um, he made friends with Ivan Reitman, who uh, kind of becomes the early shepherd of his. Uh, first handful of films uh you know of course Ivan Reitman at that point you know of course he would go on to produce things like Animal House and you know Ghostbusters and you know have a have a hand in some pretty major comedic blockbusters but he started off with the the horror film Cannibal Girls uh with um Eugene Levy and and Andrea Martin and and you know obviously he was in working in a similar vein uh early in his career and that would have synced him up with Cronenberg pretty well and uh, you know so he's 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 a pretty big sort of behind the scenes influence on on the yeah. early films he's credited here as a music supervisor as well as well as yeah. executive producer so he's got a lot of good things going on with these films yeah um, and as far as i know their their friendship continues today they're still good pals yeah. and uh but uh you know they obviously Reitman 
wound up in the states uh, as as he should have. But uh, but uh, and and I think uh, you see some influence uh, in terms of the, there's there's uh, in those first couple of films, Shivers and and Rabbit. There there's a, a strain of humor that's maybe a little more overt than it would be in, in the later films, and that might have something to do with Reitman's influence uh, to some degree. But uh, but Shivers uh, definitely feels like it's taking some of its cues from Night of the Living Dead. Um, it's uh, it's filmed mostly in an apartment building um, on uh, the Ile de Sur, the the sisters' island, where the I guess there used to be a convent there uh, outside of Montreal. And uh, yeah, it's basically about a, a bunch of parasites that uh, wreak havoc in this new, brand new, ultra modern uh, apartment block, and they. they basically enter your body and turn you into a flesh eating fiend, uh, yeah. but also, and also, but also a highly sexual fiend. So there's, he, he adds this element of sex to the kind of flesh eating, uh, ghoul aspect of night of the living dead. And, and, uh, plus with the, the many shots of the, these creatures entering and leaving people's bodies, obviously marks it as a Cronenberg film right from the get go. So it's, it's, you know, right from this, this first, uh, sort of major theatrical feature of his, um, which was originally titled "They Came from Within," uh, which is a great double entendre, but uh, you know, some people may have taken offense to that, uh, and hence the name change to Shivers. But but his 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 style is fully in effect. the The acting is uneven, um, which is par for the course for a low budget film, for and you know, a director not you know just kind of still feeling his way in many ways. But uh, but it's still highly entertaining, very much of its time. But uh, the, the, there's some great moments, and and it's. Great to see Barbara Steele, the '60s British slash uh, Italian horror queen, uh, show up here as one of the uh, residents of the apartment building, who becomes one of the the key kind of um, uh, possessed, I guess, if you will, uh, members of the population. So th- there's a lot to like about it, and uh, I was glad to. F- I-, I had a really old uh, DVD of this that I um, I finally got to watch my uh, my new Arrow Blu-ray of it, and it's amazing. It's night and day how how good it looks. Uh, in the current version, and it really, really improves on, uh, you know, what what could have just seemed like a you know bad washed out drive-in. Mm-hmm. Movie. Yeah, this is uh, the, of the ones, the early ones we watched. This was my favorite, and I think because there were elements that reminded me of of uh, Ben Wheatley's uh, High Rise. You know, oh, yeah, just for like sure. the the horror and the the suspense within this one location, this one building, and uh, and I, although, you know, there obviously, there it doesn't escape from some sexist sort of male gaze tropes as you would expect from an exploitation horror movie from 75. Well, that would also uh, be Reitman's influence, I Yeah, think, possibly. Right um, you can read, also you can read the film as unpacking the fear of overt sexuality, the criticism of male aggression, and even a, you know, an, exam, an examination of the dangers of repression. Uh, the, the suggestion that we're all capable of sexual violence is pretty scary. Uh, and I actually saw an interview with Cronenberg on YouTube where he talked about having attended a film festival in Germany a few years later, <laughs> and they screened Shivers, and someone in the audience said, how could you steal so much from the alien? And Cronenberg said, well, Shivers came out five years before Alien, and the guy said, well, now we know who the real thief is. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, Shivers, I think, is worth very much worth seeing. I was a little more... Am- I just felt a little more ambivalent about Rabid, which uh, has some great Montreal locations from 1977, including a mall, which looks none more 70s. That's the Marilyn Chambers film where uh, she is, of course, she's the famous 
the adult film actor who Cronenberg used in this film, and she had a had a brief, I guess, uh, mainstream career, if you want Very to call brief. it that. Uh, but uh, and we get to hear her disco hit Benny Hanna playing in the background of one scene, so that was a nice yeah, extra bonus. There you go. Um, but yeah, here she is uh, in a a motorcycle accident, and she gets taken to a plastic surgery clinic. Uh, where she gets a skin graft procedure, a very experimental one, and it gives her this new strain of rabies, and she becomes kind of the typhoid Mary for this crazy. It's like basically a zombie picture. Yeah, it 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 feels like uh, a lot of uh, ideas from Shivers kind of got recycled a little bit for this, and it, they had uh, they had an option to to star Marilyn Chambers, who was a, a hot name at at the time. It was going to be a big deal because it was going to be her first dramatic film, uh, and and she's fine. She's not. She's actually pretty good in the role of, of this woman who's like you say the zombie typhoid Mary with a an arm in her armpit or a mouth in her armpit which is kind of like the selling point of the film uh, and and there's some fun car crashes and things there's some 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 great action but but yeah it does feel a bit warmed over uh, when all said and done and and uh, and it doesn't have the freshness of, of shivers it's 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 fun to watch just as you know if you just take it as maybe a 70s zombie bio horror film uh you can enjoy it on that level but it's it's maybe not quite uh and maybe it was a bit rushed in production i i you know sometimes i when i hear about scanners and how they're writing scripts the night before scenes were being filmed um i I can see how maybe the production can sometimes get away from them um and uh and we'd see less of that uh, going down the road where the ideas would probably be more firmly in place yeah. Um, now, Rabbit, of course, has been remade recently, though the reviews for the remake were not awesome. I, I'm still curious to see it, see what, what uh, uh, new filmmakers might do with this idea. Uh, we also watched Fast Company, which is really his, his uh, you know, often left field project. <laughs> Apparently, he's a fan of drag racing, and, mm. and so this is, was his straight ahead, you know, drag racing movie. It's uh, his Kundun. Yeah. <laughs> Man, <laughs> that is a bizarro yeah, comparison. Sorry, I was just trying to think what could be the most left field. <laughs> Uh, thing, but, yeah, yeah, um, he, yeah. His his love of cars, and, and obviously it'll come back and crash, which we didn't actually watch for this podcast. But you know, the, he's obviously had a fascination with cars and and wrecks and racing. And uh, uh, you know, one of his, uh, I think one of his editors said he he met with Cronenberg to discuss working on a film, and they talked about race cars and motorbikes for for half an hour. And then Cronenberg just said, "Well, you've got the job." <laughs> you know, he didn't have to talk about filmmaking at all. He just had a feeling this guy. You know, was in the same headspace. But Fast Company is a curio. Uh, it's you know, it is a kind of an interesting snapshot of the the life on the road in one of the dumbest sports known to man, drag racing. Um, you know, and a, and a and a fun cast. William Smith, who usually plays villains, gets to play a hero here. I really liked him, in and this. Uh, I gotta say that was one of the draws for me. Yeah, and you've got John Saxon. You know, he gets kicked down the stairs, which is a nice dose of Saxon violence. Ha ha. Uh, oh, sorry. Boy. Thanks, Stephen. After last week's pun, I just had to keep going, I guess. Um, and uh, Claudia Jennings, uh, it was her last film. She was she starred in a bunch of drive-in pictures like Gator Bait and Truck Stop Women, and, and, and she's the best thing in those films. So she's she's fun to watch here. And then she died, in a, I believe, in a car accident, uh, you know, sometime after Fast Company came out, So, so uh, which is kind of a, a weird and sad bit of irony. But... Um, it's it's a shame she could have you know had a, a better a bigger career after this if, if uh, things hadn't gone so horribly wrong. So if you know if 
you get a chance to see this, maybe seek out some other Claudia Jennings film. They're, they're very much drive-in fare, like Texas County Moonshine Chase or whatever, the great dynamite chase, that kind of stuff. But, uh, but, but enjoyable 70s cheese, to be sure. Um, the one other thing I wanted to mention you had loaned to me was The Brood, which concludes the 70s era of, of, uh, yeah. of Cronenberg. You know, it's for me, The Brood, plot-wise, feels like the strangest Cronenberg before <laughs> Crash, because yeah. you have this protective father, played by Art Hindle, who... I think if Canada had a star system, he would be, he should be at the top of it. Like Or Hindle. his hair at the very at least. The very, he has a crazy, amazing career. <laughs> but uh, he is looking after his little girl, but he is separated from the girl's mother. And she's going through a strange alternative therapy with a Dr. Hal Raglan, who is played by the immortal Oliver Reed. Uh, and his center is called Soma Free Institute, where he performs a technique called psychoplasmatics. <laughs> and this is all going on while the father is fighting for cu- fighting with the ex for custody while she's in this therapy. I mean, it's a bizarro uh, plot that we are thrown into. And I won't even tell you how the creatures, there are creatures that show up and what their deal is. They're sort of monsters of the id in snowsuits, in tiny snowsuits, like Teletubbies who murder people. It is, I I mean, yeah, I can't even kind of get my head around it. It is actually a very entertaining, interesting film. I really love the the Toronto uh, cinematography, all those scenes of Toronto in the late 70s. Um, Nicholas Campbell, who becomes a regular in uh, Cronenberg films, he's in it. Um, And, you know, uh, but it is, I, I don't even know what to make of it. It's just a strange, strange story, apparently inspired by Cronenberg's own divorce that he had gone through. <laughs> well, it, it is an odd film. Uh, it's, I, I think if uh, if it hadn't been so well cast, Oliver Reed is just such a commanding presence. And, uh, you know, and Art Hindle was, was a reliable Canadian leading man and Samantha Egger is the wife. Is is very good and and uh, and and creepy kids. You can't go wrong. I think I think this is around the time of like it's alive, and we'd also had you know like Village of the Damned and that kind of thing. So I think I think there was somebody just said you know let's make a creepy kid movie, and then Cronenberg takes that and completely turns it inside out to to make it about this failing marriage and his thoughts about um, aggressive psychoanalysts and, and maybe the Est movement. I think might be uh, sort of lurking in the background there. Uh, something that also shows up in Semi Tough. So if you can connect, you, <laughs> if you want to do a double feature of the Brood and Semi Tough, I, I highly recommend it. It's it's very odd, but it's, I, I love the atmosphere. The Criterion Blu-ray of it is quite quite good. Um, it's nice to watch these in in the best possible form, and uh, yeah, it's it's it couldn't have been made at any other time. So. I, uh, yeah, I, I, it is, it is odd, but, uh, but full of unexpected twists and turns throughout the thing. So I, yeah, I, I, I love just everything about this film in its, in its, in its weirdness. And, um, I, th- but I think, yeah, I think Cronenberg gets a tighter narrative control happening a- after this film, um, in his, in his following films. And, and maybe this is the last time he sort of really cut loose in that kind of weird way. Um, maybe until a naked lunch anyway. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new movies in theaters and then links them up to a whole passel of films from days gone by that you might want to catch up with. Um, today, we originally were talking about Disappearance at Clifton Hill, a very good Canadian-made thriller set in Niagara Falls, which happens to feature uh, Canadian horror genius David Cronenberg in a supporting role as a very intriguing character, uh, lifting up uh, the rock to see what's crawling underneath <laughs> 
of uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, and uh, we thought that'd be a good opportunity to take a look at his films. Uh, I think we've been talking about doing a Cronenberg show for a while. And uh, he's recently has said that the, the difficulties in getting funding and so on mean that he's maybe won't return to feature filmmaking. He might do something for the small screen, which would still be very interesting to see, even if he was just in a kind of producer conceptual kind of role. Uh, and it, it's kind of a shame to think that there won't be any more Cronenberg features. But, I, th- you know, the, the hoops you have to jump through to get fun- funding and, uh, and backing are, are so immense, uh, especially for a project that he might want to do with a more substantial budget. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's you know, probably not worth the psychic energy that he'd have to put out to, to get that ball in motion. If so, Cronenberg can't get a feature film made in well, this country, yeah, that's then it. who can, right? You know, and it's not like films like recent films like A History of Violence or uh, Eastern Promises are, they don't look like expensive films. And he always works with the same crew as much as possible. So I have a feeling that a Cronenberg unit is a very tightly oiled machine when it comes to making a film. But even that probably doesn't guarantee him anything because people are, I think there's a fear of anything that's too weird or out there uh, generally in the, in the, the modern age of film funding, which is, which is a real shame. But uh, thankfully, we do have a sizable filmography that we're making our way through and quickly running out of time. We're at the halfway point right now. And, and we just got to 1980 and the film that uh, really changed everything for him, and that's Scanners, um, a uh, you know, psychological and physiological horror film about people with the power to make your head explode real good. <laughs> Basically, I mean that's that's kind of the tagline. There's a lot more going on here in terms of um, you know the, the the medical horror and the background of this that that people were given uh, drugs during pregnancy that caused their offspring to become psychically uh, and um, uh, what's the word? Not kinetic. Um, what what Carrie was? I should remember this word. Telekinetic. There yeah, we go. I was close. Go. Uh, I got had half of it right, uh, and uh, developed sort of telekinetic powers uh, with uh, devastating results. And of course, uh, what uh, Scanners goes into the idea that with uh, great power uh, comes great irresponsibility. As <laughs> his uh, uh, one group of Scanners is basically trying to take over the world with their powers, and another group is trying to hold them at bay and maintain the status quo. Um, this would be a great double feature with the Fury. I just thought. Of well, that. yeah, the, the Fury is definitely along the same lines, and they, yeah. I think they came out pretty close to one mm-hmm. another. So, and I, I don't know if it was uh, Carrie that uh, maybe inspired these, or that that maybe made Cronenberg uh, decide to take that idea to the next level. It's like, well, what if you know, what if there's more than one Carrie? What if there's a bunch of Carries running around and using their powers for good and or evil? Um, uh, but also the, the whole idea of giving pregnant women drugs. Uh, to uh, ease their pregnancy that results uh, was obviously inspired by the whole thalidomide scandal, which was just a, a, a horrible, horrible crisis. And, uh, and, and, but here he takes it to um, horrific new, uh, new depths or heights, depending on how you look at it. Um, the film, of course, became famous for its special effects, especially a scene early in the film when beloved Canadian actor Louis Delgrand uh, has his head scanned by Michael Ironside and it explodes in, um, in, Full glory, uh, which is now a famous GIF that people like to throw around on on uh, social media, but uh, but but the film is is very effective as a thriller. Um, Michael Ironside is a great bad guy, uh, very much in the vein of John Saxon uh, uh, in uh, Fast Company, except that uh, you know he's obviously you know in a much better film here. And uh, you know I love the the kind of the the late seventies Montreal vibe of this film as well. Like it, it makes great use of locations. And, uh, and again, a very, very tight running time. Uh, you know, most of these Cronenberg films, they 
barely get over 90 minutes or very rarely, you know, go even close to the two hour mark. And uh, he's so good at, at just uh, just running a tightly controlled and uh, efficient uh, story that uh, that a lot of filmmakers could learn from, I think. Yeah, he is uh, he is really gifted as a storyteller. And as he's going through the 80s, he starts to get more and more confident. You sort of feel his confidence growing. Um, I know a lot of people really love Videodrome from 1983. It's not one of my favorites of his, but I do know, obviously, what you, you remark at the top of the uh, show, the new flesh, that's where that comes from. And uh, it's it in some ways, it is the sort of quintessential body horror uh, from him. Um, and, and it does crystallize a lot of his his, you know, his interests um, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. I, I wouldn't say that I, again, I wouldn't say it's it's a, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Videodrome, but I understand why people really love it. Um, my, my favorite Cronenberg films are probably somewhere between Dead Zone and uh, Dead Ringers, both of which were in the 80s. The Dead Zone, of course, being his uh, collaboration with Stephen King, starring Christopher Walken as a, as a uh, the, as a psychic who has a, a very rough life, uh, but tries to do his best to help people um, and become a sort of investigator of sorts and discovers a, a conspiracy that only he can stop. Um, and then uh, Dead Ringers is that incredible performance, dual performance. Um, by Jeremy Irons as twin gynecologists. And watching that again, just it chills you in ways other films simply do not. Um, of course, in between those films, he made The Fly, which was his, probably his biggest box office success. I'd say, well, well, I mean, Scanners was a big hit uh, made for not a lot of money. And that, so that allowed him to write his own ticket with Videodrome. I think Videodrome was a big cult hit. I don't think it quite, uh, because it is so weird and so dark and, but also very prescient, like it, it almost predicts the internet in in, in uh, 1981 in in a big way. Um, so you know, or 83, or 83, yeah, yes, yeah. Sorry, I had my back to the IMDb here, but uh, but I, I feel like it, it's it's very much uh, looking forward to uh, you know. I, I feel like you could remake it with uh, Videodrome, with the, the channel being either a streaming site or you know a weird version of YouTube or something like that, and you could make it just as effective. Um, but uh, but it was enough of it. It was kind of like well, you know, it kind of got the art house crowd on his side to a to a greater extent, and allowed him to kind of um, you know work with the majors for things like Dead Zone and The Fly. Um, the Fly is terrific. It still works incredibly well. The the effects uh, and uh, it's still the era of practical effects. And you had people like Winston Smith, and I can't remember the name of the guy who did them on the fly, but um, it. it it's the makeup and and the goo and and the the pods and everything about it is great. It's pre CGI. I know he worked so with Rick Baker in some of the early films, but I'm not sure if he was on the fly. No, well. I don't think he was on the fly. I think yeah. they wanted to get him for the fly, but he was working on something else, and he recommended whoever they wound up working with, uh, whose name escapes me. But uh, it's um, you know, and it it, it also uh, it's kind of his first time. Uh, well, I, I guess uh, the Dead Zone. He's working with stars like Walken and she- Martin Sheen, who plays the 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 kind of evil politician, the Trump esque <laughs> politician, which is one of the reasons why the Dead Zone feels weirdly prescient today. But uh, the Fly, he's he's got uh, Jeff Goldblum and uh, Gina Davis, and they they were a couple at the time, but they work wonderfully in the film as well. And and Goldblum 
you know, you get you get that mix of kind of his magnetic personality, but also his quirkiness uh, are used probably as as well as they've ever been used. You know, may, maybe Jurassic Park, perhaps, but you know, I don't think he was as well used in that whole chain as he could have been. But here, he's front and center as Seth Brundle, the uh, the uh, the scientist whose teleporting experiment goes horribly awry when his uh, DNA is fused with that of a of a fly and of course uh, it's based on uh, the classic Vincent Price horror film from I think the late 50s uh, here taken to gruesome and hideous extremes and you know rewatching it again I hadn't watched it since the, probably the, the late 80s and it's I'd forgotten how you know gruesome and horrific it really is <laughs> and it, yes. yet it came out through 20th Century Fox it was a studio picture and uh, and and still I think he I think he wasn't really held back in any way, shape, or form. I can't imagine, you know, there's, there's scenes that, I, like, well, I don't think they had to censor that. That it was that looks fully, fully formed, uh, and uh, but it's also, but it's also a love story. Uh, and and in some of the interviews, Cronenberg says he, he imagined it as kind of a screwball comedy where the uh, the hero turns into a, a, a mutates into a fly, basically, and you know I think that approach serves the material well. Yeah, I do too. the The romance there is really strong, and you really feel a connection between these actors. And uh, you know, of course, Goldblum and Davis eventually married, but then later divorced, sadly. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is. Um, it's something. There's something special about this film, and it, of course, it continues Cronenberg's examination of the body and of is interest in illness, and of course, a lot of people saw this as analogous for AIDS. Um, I have a small anecdote, which I don't think I've shared on this um, podcast before, about my connection, my small, slightly tenuous connection to this film. Uh, I did work in production in Toronto in the 90s uh, on many shows, and I got to know slightly uh, Cronenberg's sister, Denise, who is a uh, wardrobe uh, uh, supervisor. She works on all, I mean, she does wardrobe for, I think, all of Cronenberg's films, um, or if not all of them, most of them. And uh, she's quite a character, but she also works on other productions. Uh, but the Cronenberg shot The Fly at in Kleinberg in Ontario, and that there's a studio there. They also shot Three Men and a Baby. When I worked in that studio on a movie of the week called Night of the Twisters, um, it was in a, sort of set in a valley out in the countryside, and uh, there there was farms nearby, and there were a lot of flies in the production <laughs> office. It was it was a terrible fly problem, and I wondered whether or not maybe it was just like these were the descendants of the flies that they used for the film production. Uh, maybe it wasn't so much the farm, but Cronenberg's crew and the flies they needed for their film that were just still living around. They'd, <laughs> they'd fly into those lamps that you have, those sort of halogen lamps, and they'd fry and make a sizzle, and then the, the terrible smell of burning fly. It all just brought it all back, I guess, is what Revenge I'm saying. Revenge of the Flies. There you go, yeah, 10 years later. Um, anyway, so yes, uh, we also watched, or I should say I watched, uh, Dead Ringers. I don't know if you had a chance to revisit I, it. I didn't get a chance to revisit it. I, I believe my only copy of it is on Laserdisc, believe it or not, and I didn't uh, fire up the coal-powered Laserdisc player <laughs> to uh, to watch it, but I, you know, I have, I've seen it within the last 10 years or so, and, you know, I still have really strong memories of it. Um, it it's, it's a unique horror film in that it's it's uh i think women will respond to it more strongly than men do which is i think unusual for for horror films but because it's about twin gynecologists uh, who go off the deep end uh i think that would be the primary reason but but it has i mean jeremy irons uh was was really at the top of his game at this point i think i feel like uh his um his film with louis mal um uh 
about a marriage going south and that uh, I now forget the name of. I think it was around the same time, and uh, pardon me for that one. But uh, uh, and and he was, you know, he the fact that he would appear in something this kind of extreme and that would require this amount of work uh, says a lot about um, the man and and his uh, his craft, I guess, because he has to play the twins. Uh, he's got to sort of act against himself. There were a lot of new um, motion camera, motion um, controlled camera techniques being incorporated to be able to uh, do more than just the standard split screen approach to uh, having an actor play twins or play against himself or whatever. Uh, and uh, and it's it still seems fairly seamless to me. Um, I mean, special effects aren't really the be all and end all of this film. It's not the reason that it got made, but um, but to have uh, to have Irons play two, you know, just subtly different versions of the same character uh, is, is a pretty remarkable feat. And um, and I like that the, you know, it, it's still body horror, but made completely realistic. Like I don't think there's anything fantastic about yeah. this film. It's no. it's you know about addiction and 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 sickness and. Um, you know, gynecological terror, which is 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 maybe the most frightening of all. Yeah, and I mean, any anyone who's been to the doctor, we put a lot of trust and power in the hands of the medical professionals. So, anytime the imagining imagining doctors going insane and you know creating uh, surgical instruments for mutant women, I mean, you know, because anyway, I won't say any more about it. It is an, an intense and frightening journey and uh, about that. But I, I will say that, interestingly, you know, you already got these, at the start of this film, you've got these twin gynecologists who are already violating the Hippocratic Oath by <laughs> by pretending, A, In to a be way. one person and then having sex with a patient. Uh, a movie star is played by Jean-Vierre Bujold, who's terrific in the film. Yes, the one thing I will say about the film is I sort of missed her when she's not there. About halfway through the movie, she sort of vanishes. And I wish she was in it more because she's so good. And it creates this sort of weird love triangle between the three of them. Um, but, of course, Cronenberg will revisit that as sort of a plot point in his later film, A Dangerous Method, which I think is an underrated film. And if you're looking for double features, Dead Ringers and A Dangerous Method, I think would make for a really interesting one. Yes. And the moral is always get a second opinion. (laughs) Um, So, you know what? We should say a couple of things about Naked Lunch, which was a film. Now, I was a teenager and read William Burroughs and uh, read Tom Wolfe and I read Hunter Thompson. And I was very much indoctrinated into those writers. Those those outlaw writers of the '60s, um, and their their vision of the world and, and their sort of drug-addled uh, perception, which I thought was I thought that Naked Lunch was kind of a bible in some ways for a, a particular way of seeing the world. And so when the film came out, I found it lacking. It really bothered me. I was a purist, I guess, and I couldn't quite go where Cronenberg was going with it. Uh, having watched, having looked at it again. Uh, you know, I still find it troublesome because I know Interzone, I always imagine Interzone and the North Africa to, would be on location. And I know it's all in, <laughs> yes. in, it's all a place in the mind, but I just was bothered that it seems so much like a Toronto warehouse uh, <laughs> where it was actually shot. So so I, I'm, I've got many years from it now and I'm watching it again. I'm actually much more, I enjoyed the performances much more. Judy Davis, especially, who's a favorite of mine. Peter Weller is great. Um, Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider in his, yeah, looking at this point in his career like he'd spent a little too much time in the sun uh, but you know these, very leathery yes. very a little bit leathery but you know it's I think it, it, yeah I, I was much more forgiving of it I guess this time around <laughs> 
So the 90s, in David Cronenberg did M. Butterfly, which is unseen by us. I think maybe the only one that we both haven't seen and we didn't catch on this review. Yeah, I think it played at the Oxford for a week. Yeah, and it, then wasn't, it was gone. It wasn't very well reviewed, uh, but it's one I'd still like to see at some point. In, well, if only for Jeremy Irons and John Lone. Yeah, but. exactly. Yeah. Uh, of course, then he made his most, maybe his most controversial film, Crash, in 1996. I've seen it once and I found it scarring. Uh, I I can appreciate why the Cannes jury came up with a one-time award for cinematic ambition for this film, but I don't really feel like I necessarily need to see it again. It's, I found incredibly, this is a masterpiece of provocation, and I think it crystallizes his coldness and his interest in sexual abnormality, excuse me, but I don't know that uh, I wanted to see it again. Yeah, I'd call it deeply unsettling. (laughs) It's, uh, even though it's not, even though what we see on screen isn't necessarily as, disturbing as what we see in say the fly or videodrome uh just because it's equates sex violence uh and cars uh it it just illustrates how much we're tied to the vehicle i guess i actually remember going to see this at park lane cinemas and then after the i got in my car after the film and i sat there and i could not put my hands on the wheel (laughs) i actually had to get out of the car and like go for a walk and you know, just not think about it for a while before I could actually put my uh, put my foot on the pedal. It was, and uh, that's, I mean, that says a lot about the impact of the film. The fact that I could not drive anywhere <laughs> immediately after seeing it. I think, I think that says something about. Well, obviously the the power of J.G. Uh, Ballard's work and also Cronenberg's, uh, I think, fairly successful adaptation of it. But I, I, and I will probably return to it someday. But I. Sometimes I just, I think, yeah, <laughs> maybe fair not enough. yet. Not and, yet. And I think it, you know, another thing it did was was uh, brought to the fore James Spader's particular weirdness, which he, you know, I don't think we talk enough about what James Spader brought to cinema in the first half of his career before he became a TV star. Uh, he was so peculiar. Uh, anyway, we can have, a, we'll do a whole James Spader episode yeah. sometime. Maybe and Holly, we'll Holly Hunter Crash. is great here. Uh, you know, the, and that's probably uh, her performance, probably the reason why I would return to it, but yeah. uh, not anytime soon. Um, so, Existence from 1999 exists somewhere between The Matrix and Videodrome. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of largely set in a video game and it's a thriller and has things like gristle guns. Um, I enjoyed the sort of hallucinatory aspect of this film. I really liked Jennifer Jason Lee's performance. I think she really has a coolness in this film that a controlling presence that I don't think she's she's often playing victims, I think, in her career. And this time she really wasn't. Um, I really liked her Allegra Geller. And I like Jude Law. He's very pretty. Uh, Willem Dafoe is and great. And a very weird character. He's yeah. He's this weird milk toast who then you know that has you know he's got to become a hero and all this stuff but it's it's an odd it's one of the oddest performances in his career that's for sure yeah and then there's you know surrounded by these canadian actors like sarah Pauly and don mckellar and callum keith rennie it's uh i certainly worth looking at um i was a little creeped out by the gristle guns shooting <laughs> teeth they kind of grossed me out um so, but I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a favorite of mine. I don't think it's a favorite of yours either. Steve. Not really, no. And uh, you know, I actually rewatched it, hoping, okay, I'm I'm going to get something out of it this time around that maybe I didn't the first time, and I really didn't. Uh, it's 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 basically his farewell to body horror, uh, and 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 that those kind of early career sort of Cronenbergian touches, uh, and I, maybe I feel like his maybe his heart isn't fully in it uh, at this point. Like this doesn't feel like the kind of film he actually wants to make 
at this point in time, and yet uh, here he is making it, and and very much returning to the themes of Videodrome. Um, only, you know, obviously seeing video games is kind of the next step, uh, especially with virtual reality on the horizon and that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's it's very timely, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, Videodrome is so much more extreme in its approach to its material, and Existence feels fairly tame to me. And, uh, you know, and but there's still, I mean, it, it's not that I didn't like it. It's still very watchable. It's very coherent in the way, like, you know, if you if you think about the way it jumps between levels of reality, you know, when they're playing like a game within a game within a game, I think. I'm trying yeah. to think. They're yeah. very, very much like incep, you know, inception, inception yeah, before totally. inception. Yeah. But um uh you know I think he juggles all those ball narrative balls very well. And and you, you know, everyone every scene, you know, oh, there's Willem Dafoe as a crazed mechanic and you know um you know the Don McKellar has a great part as a as a kind of a a kind of weird Eastern European ally of, uh, of theirs, at least we think so. And then, uh, so the, there's, there's lots to enjoy along the way, but it just feels disjointed and, and not terribly fresh to me. Yeah. So, um, it, worth, worth seeing, uh, but, uh, maybe with, uh, diminished expectations. After that, he made Spider in 2002 from the Patrick McGrath novel, shot in London. And, uh, you know, I I found this gloomy going. It's sort of a deep dive into the childhood Freudian delusions of a man living in the King's Cross area, rooming house, a man played by Rafe Fiennes. Um, You know, he has visions of his father, Gabriel Byrne, and his mother, Miranda Richardson, or at least different versions of his mother. It's it's not, it's really a departure from body horror horror altogether or anything like that that much more psychological drama. Um, and I appreciated the way in which it was shot uh, and the performances, though um, I found it a difficult watch. Uh, and I don't know, you know, it just, it's it's dark, you know, gloomy, sort of threadbare London, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, times. Um, so, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I appreciate that he, again, was stretching in different directions, Mr. Cronenberg. I do like this film. Uh, I have not seen it in a long time. I did not uh, have a chance to watch it for this show, but but I actually got to interview Cronenberg by phone uh, when this came out, and uh, we talked a lot about schizophrenia and, and its kind of hallucinatory nature uh, and uh, and the research that he did uh, and that Ray Fiennes also did uh, for the part. And, uh, you know, the, I I think that shows on the screen. They, the, there's a lot of background work that goes into the portrayal and, and, and the storytelling here, which which may not be readily apparent. And uh, it's, uh, I think it's it's a pretty remarkable film. I th- it is, a, I think, in some ways a lesser film in his filmography, but I think uh, I think everybody here is is really, you know, pulling at their best and, and uh, it deserves to be seen. I mean, there aren't many portrayals of schizophrenia on in films where, you know, they're usually, you know, somebody, you know, gets over it. <laughs> like, like here, it's, it's, it's really a deeply rooted psychosis uh, and, and, and especially rooted in childhood trauma. And, and as someone with, uh, with a dear friend who was diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia, it was the same case, uh, you know, childhood trauma, uh, long buried, resurfaced, and then triggered, um, you know, the, the the mental health issue, which is ongoing decades later. So uh, to me, Spider felt very real, even while it has these kind of uh, imaginary elements to it within um, Ray Fiennes' character's mind. Uh, it's it's I found very well done. Maybe one of those things where you appreciate it more than enjoy it, but uh, I, I feel like the film accomplishes what it set out to do. After that, uh, 
Cronenberg entered what I like to call his Vigo Mortensen period, <laughs> where he made three films with Vigo, and they are all terrific, uh, starting with A History of Violence in 2005, Eastern Promises in 2007, and A Dangerous Method in 2011. That last film did not, as I mentioned earlier, didn't get much attraction with audiences, but it's very much worth seeing. It's a, It looks at the uh, relationship between Carl Jung and... Um, uh, Sigmund Freud and uh, a patient uh, that Jung had, and you know, and, and this connection between the three of them. Um, but a history of violence. Watching that again, boy, that's hold held up well. It's uh, it's a, a thriller about a man who is living a quiet life in Indiana, very much Southern Ontario, by the way. It looks so much like <laughs> yes, Southern Ontario. It does look like Indiana. And uh, and then he um, he gets becomes a sort of a hero in his town and gets a lot of press, and then gangsters from his past supposedly from his past at at first he he we're not sure what the deal is show keeps showing up including ed harris um but it's the core of this is about the relationship between this man played by mortensen and his family and the secrets that we all carry and and really it's an examination of what masculine violence especially has uh, on children on generations and on the culture um it's it's it works on multiple levels this movie and that's one of the things I really loved about it. Yeah, I, I watched it uh, just this morning after recovering from the time change, and so I'm already a little discombobulated. But but uh, this is the, probably the third time I've seen this because I saw it in theaters and I I watched it on uh, video as soon as it came out and then I hadn't thought about it in a while and uh, it's uh, just the level of control over the story and and how everything in this film just works like clockwork, but, but not in a mechanical way, but, but just, uh, the seamless, uh, intertwining of, of the story of the acting of the, of the, of the music by Howard Shore, who had, deserves a shout out because he's done stellar work in, uh, in most of Cronenberg's films going back to, well, Videodrome, if not earlier than that, I can't remember if he worked on scanners, but, but, uh, they've been a terrific team, uh, you know, on the level of Hitchcock and Bernard Herman, I think. Uh, and uh, the cast is just phenomenal. Ed Harris uh, is is so menacing as the henchman of the the actual the big bad who we get at the end. I don't even know if I want to say too much about it, but um, you know you think Harris is the main bad guy, but uh, there's somebody worse um, waiting around the corner, which is another great thing about this film. Uh, and and then we get Stephen McCaddy and uh, Dan Brick as a pair of kind of a Henry Lee Lucas and, and his buddy uh, Otis, uh, kind of serial killers who show up early in the film uh, and then are dispatched, uh, which leads, of course, to uh, um, Mortensen's character, his uh, his man in hiding being revealed. So uh, you know, just I just love everything about this film. It, and it's it's like 95 minutes long. It's It just packs so much into its running time and every element uh, fits together. I was trying to think... If I could think of anything negative to say about it, I thought, well, the bit with the high school bully and and Vigo's son um, is a tad overplayed. Uh, but then, of course, it does have a, a very satisfying kind of uh, conclusion to that particular subplot. It, it, imagine if uh, Michael J. Fox was able to really give Biff what he deserved in Back <laughs> to the Future um, and, uh, and and then take that up a notch. Yeah, um, but I, it also kind of criticizes it as well because exa- this is ex- what he's learning from his dad. Exactly. I mean, the, the film very much lies, but it lays out what, uh, you know, what, is in us the potential to become violent, um, whether it's long buried in our past or if it's necessary for our survival. Uh, you know, domestic violence uh, is also addressed in in a way, and uh, it's but it's 
it's more about the story than the treatise, but, but the themes that it brings up, it handles very well without shoving them into your face, I thought. Yeah, um, it was great seeing that again, and I will recommend any day of the week Eastern Promises. This is Cronenberg uh, having gone to London to do a story about gangsters, the Russian mob. Uh, again, Viggo Mortensen playing a really interesting character who you never really understand his motivation, even towards the end. Naomi Watts is a London nurse investigating the death of a Russian prostitute, and uh, this is also great work, very mature a thriller, you know, and, and some people might say it's getting away from a lot of his themes, but I still found this really a real a watch I've gone back to many times. I think in terms of of Cronenberg's films, this is the one I've seen the most because it's just it, I, I the world it's set in. I really kind of connect with, I guess, in some way. And um, uh, I love the fact that in History of Violence, Viggo Mortensen is a good guy who turns out to have been a bad guy. And in Eastern Promises, he's a bad guy who turns out to be a good guy. Yes. I, I, I love I love how those two films fit so well together. They're they're different stories, but they address uh, similar themes. And we've only kind of talked about we're, we're rapidly running out of time, but but uh, a dangerous method. Uh, you know, teams Viggo Mortensen with Michael Fassbender as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung with a, a wonderful Kira Knightley performance as uh, the woman who, who becomes the object of their intellect um, and attraction. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a wonderful portrayal of these characters. I think it's uh, I think it's relatively accurate historically. It's beautifully shot in Europe. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's a. Again, it's it's Cronenberg trying something new with still sticking to uh, his themes, but maybe uh, in a more um, erudite way, perhaps uh, in terms of dealing with psychology and and mental breakdown. But but uh, it addresses those in in a historical framework that works really well. As we wrap up this episode of Lens Mirror Ears, the film podcast. Uh, we realized we really didn't get much time to talk about Cronenberg's most recent two films, Cosmopolis from 2012 and Maps to the Stars in 2014, both of which have really interesting ideas. I don't think either of them works particularly well, but but I do appreciate that Cosmopolis has Robert Pattinson. It kind of was a career changer for him make, in, a, in a role, a very a much more different role than people were used to seeing him in, and he's really gone that way with his career since uh basically a story of a data gajillionaire spending his day in his limo and the people that he meets who come to drop in on him as he goes about his day stuck in traffic yeah great performances strung throughout this film and, and maybe a an intriguing comment on the whole occupy movement but but doesn't really hold together for me. No. And Maps of Stars is the same. Again, worth seeing for Mia Wasikowska and for uh, Julianne Moore, uh, sort of a, a poison pill for, uh, you know, Day of the Locust for uh, for Cronenberg at looking at Hollywood. But uh, but hopefully he will make another feature film, something that works a little better uh, if he's going to keep he's going to keep making them at all if, if, it, if that's what pleases him um all right so you've been listening to lens me your ears thank you so much for giving us a try here uh if you want to reach out to us we have a facebook page we are on twitter as as lens me your ears and uh steven you've got your own twitter account i do at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e and i've got one as well named after my film blog. It's called Flaw in the Iris. If you'd like to share some of your uh, largesse with us and help us do what we do, we have a Patreon account. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities here and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thank you for listening and uh, we'll talk about the movies again very soon. See you next time. 
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.